From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Corngut. I am a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today, we are going to be talking about Peter Jackson's never made A Nightmare on Elm Street sequel, The Dream Lover. Uh, Today's references and information come from the book Peter Jackson from Prince of Splatter to Lord of the Rings by author Ian Pryor. And there's also a CBR.com article by Timothy Donahue. Today, we have a very special returning guest judge. We've got Tyler Dupay. Tyler, 
How's it going? And welcome back. It's it's a pleasure to be back. And uh, I think you forgot <laughs> to say back by popular demand. There, I, I did. No, I said it. We had you on one of our quite popular episodes, which was Hellraiser 2011 reboot, an amazing franchise. But I'm going to say it, not as amazing as today's franchise, A Nightmare on Elm Street. This is sort of your favorite of all the classics. Is that true? Yeah, of all the classic horror franchises, you know, as much as I love the Friday the 13th franchise or Child's Play or Sleepaway Camp or, you know, any number of of other uh, horror series, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street has always just been closest to my heart. You know, I grew up in the heart of Freddy mania. Freddy was always kind of like forbidden fruit, you know, because just even the mention of his name would drive my parents up the wall. You know, they just, you know, thought they thought horror movies were satanic. And and this uh, is pretty satanic in terms of the horror movie spectrum. But Tyler, before we get too deep into Nightmare on Elm Street, will you do me the favor of reintroducing yourself to the development hall audience? Of course, I would love to. Uh, I am Tyler Dupay, and I work as a staff writer at Dread Central, as the managing editor at wickedhorror.com, and I am actually getting very, very close to uh, releasing a book with my co-editor, Sean Abley, on queer references, themes, characters, etc. in the horror universe. I'm so excited to read that whenever I can. That's really, oh, really cool. And congrats. Well, thank you. It's uh, the manuscript is due to the publisher by the end of the month. So, oh, God. Uh, My condolences. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, so I've been running awesome. around like headless animal of some sort. But it, uh, Have you for- been wanting to do a book for a while? Has this been on your bucket list? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, a friend once told me, a journalist friend once told me in so many words, you know, and I paraphrase, but you're no one until you have a book or, you know, no one's <laughs> going to take you seriously until you have a book. And, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment, but at the same time, it kind of like, you know, lit a fire inside of me. And I was like, well, I want to be someone. I need a book. Wow. And, uh, you know, the opportunity just kind of fell in my lap. I started out working with Sean as the primary and sole editor and, uh, you know, was, was just a contributor uh, doing a select number of entries. And the project stalled out a little bit and uh, just continued to grow in terms of scope. You know, we, we finally just kind of came to an arrangement that we would uh, sort of tackle it together as a collaborative effort. And super grateful to Sean and grateful for the opportunity and just grateful to have a book deal. Just to be able to say that is... Uh, it's very yeah. glamorous, I Pretty have to well, say. Very glamorous, isn't it? Very glamorous, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm very psyched for you guys. Um, and I'm also psyched to be getting into the Nightmare franchise, but specifically number six. And the reason for that is that this Peter Jackson, A Nightmare on Elm Street, that I keep talking about, The Dream Lover, was originally developed as the potential sixth installment. So this was going to be after number five, um, Dream Child. Why am I getting so nervous? I love this franchise. I know this. I need to believe in myself. Yeah, so this was potentially going to be number six. Of course, it wasn't. Instead, we got Freddy's Dead. I made you rewatch it for today. But what would you say your relationship with Freddy's Dead is in in the Nightmare universe? I mean, it's probably like my second least favorite entry with you know if if we're counting the reboot that's probably my least favorite just because it was so you know I mean it was kind of a little bit like the Psycho remake or the Omen remake where you know it kind of just did the same thing you know not not word for word like those two you know but the the remake just didn't really kind of you know 
do its own thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that would probably be my least favorite. Freddy's Dead, uh, you know, comes in somewhere before that. And I will say that although I still don't like it very much, I did enjoy it more this time, maybe just because of tempered expectations. You know, it wasn't quite as bad as I remembered it. This was the time that I most enjoyed watching it and was probably the most lenient watching it. And I'm kind of excited to talk about that shortly. Today, we're going to be talking about the original Nightmare on Elm Street and the entire franchise. We're going to be talking about Freddy's Dead and the context of when that came out. We're going to get a little bit into Peter Jackson, who is she, what's she up to. And then finally, we're going to get deep into Peter Jackson's Never Made a Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Lover. To start us off, I'm going to revisit our general relationships with A Nightmare on Elm Street. We were talking about that it's a really big one for you. But for me, I would say it's my number one of the franchises. It's so creative. It's so outside of the box. It's kind of unlike the rest of the canon franchises that we love so much. And I think there was always just something really dangerous about Freddy when I was younger. He was the one that sort of seemed to have the highest likelihood of actually coming out of the movie and, and getting me. And maybe it's because our dreams are a bit of a in-between, between fiction and reality. There's something about them kind of felt like maybe he'd have access to us there, even though he's not real, because dreams aren't real. And then, of course, the franchise went meta and blurred that line even further. So Freddy's just, he's scary. And that's why I like him. Um, I completely yeah. agree. In, in addition to scary, I think he's probably if not the most, one certainly of the most intelligent, the horror icons in terms of the way that he's portrayed. I mean, uh, you have, you know, Michael Myers, who doesn't really speak and doesn't seem, you know, isn't really shown as being exceptionally bright, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of same thing with Jason Voorhees and, uh, you know, some of the others, but Freddie is very quick thinking, sharp witted, And, uh, you know, I think that makes him even more dangerous because he's just very cunning. And so I think that adds an extra layer of terror to his persona, uh, for me at least. And making him extra relatable. Uh, What was your first engagement with this franchise? Was it the first film or was it a different entry? You know what? I think it might have actually been... Freddy's Dead, believe it or not. Whoa. Uh, yeah, auspicious. I think, I think uh, you know, I think I'd never seen an Elm Street film. And, you know, I was just excited to check one out because it had been kind of like forbidden fruit when I was younger. You know, my my parents were very anti-horror and particularly anti-Freddy, I think, because he had so much media attention uh, because of Freddy mania. You know, and I was mm-hmm. alive in the in the 80s and the, the early 90s when it was really kind of going on. I, you know, didn't get to see it until I was a little older, like a teenager. And I just grabbed the first Nightmare on Elm Street film that I saw at the video store and it was Freddy's Dead. And I I don't know. I mean, I it, it didn't put me off of the franchise. That's for sure. I think it gave me an idea of, you know, how scary the idea could be and an idea of the potential and made me very curious to check out the other films, which, of course, I, you know, soon did. How about you? What was your entry point? I think it's one of the rare franchises where I did start off with the first one. I think it was one that I was most wary about checking out when I was young. It was just like, I think I was even like scared of like seeing the image of him on the box. Like I was really nervous that it was going to be too much for me. And then I watched the first one and it was it was scary, but I think I realized I, I had, you know, I could handle it. And then I went through them, I think basically in order 
but yeah, it was the first one, and it, I think it really blew my mind. It's a really artfully done film, even from that very opening shot. There's something yeah, thoughtful and elegant about that first movie that really reeled me in. Elegant yeah. is a great word to describe that film. It is very true. It is mm-hmm. a lot more cerebral than mm-hmm. like a Friday the 13th film. I think there's there's a lot more kind of psychology behind the character and behind all of the characters, really. And yeah. uh, I, I just think there's a little bit more of a, well, not a little, but I think there's a lot more of a story there than you see with uh, maybe your typical slasher film. I, I think it mm-hmm. I think it's pretty incredible. Says something about Wes Craven. He's given us some of the more clever, more intelligent entries into the canon. And we miss him and we love him. Um, Absolutely. Other than the first one, what would you say your favorite entry in this franchise would be? It's actually even almost tied for first place with the first one is New Nightmare for me. Like you said, blurred the lines and it's, I think it's probably even scarier than the first because it, in many ways, you know, the first one was just a movie. This is real life. Yeah. And it kind of blurs that, you know, fantasy and reality line. You know, the actors and actresses are using their real names, playing themselves. And, you know, they still can't escape Freddy. And, and that, I mean, that's real genius to me. Very genius. Very, very smart. And I think they were aware that people were really afraid of Freddy this was before the internet was super mainstream. This was before I think we had access to a lot of behind the scenes content. And so there was something about Freddy in the schoolyard or just in our minds that, I don't know, we were a little nervous that he could have access to us. So then them really erasing that line and making it hella meta, it's kind of a rotten genius move. And it is scary for sure. That is one of the few horror movies that still kind of rattles me. You know, The Strangers is one of them, I think, just because it's so grounded in reality, you know, with the home invasion angle. Yeah. And and New Nightmare is another one because it it feels like all bets are off. You know, the stakes are sky high. And, you know, Freddy is so evil that he can't be confined to a screenplay or a feature film. Like he's, you know, basically like oozing his way out of you know the the dream realm the the fantasy realm into the real world and and that's uh i mean that's quite a trip and it's just like hella creative and interesting for me i don't know if i'm just being like a a pretentious little prick (laughs) and not picking the third one because the third one is so so incredible but there's just something tonally about dream master that summarizes what i like about this franchise and it's not necessarily when it's hitting its mark. There's something comforting about these movies when they're not necessarily succeeding. And I think the fourth film really balances scary, grotesque, and like impressive with a, a lot more camp and, and being a little bit dodgier and being unrelentlessly 80s. So there's something really fun about that fourth film. And I think Alice is a bit of an underappreciated heroine. And yeah, uh, we should talk her, about her a little bit more. I think that the uh, fourth film really just, if I'm not mistaken, kind of picks up directly where the third left off. And I think that's yeah. kind of exciting because it sort of starts with momentum, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I also like a, a middle trilogy. And I think Friday does this at 1.2 where it's just like smack dab in the franchise. Oh, Tommy Jarvis, right? Like- yeah, exactly. The Tommy Jarvis trilogy, which is what, four, five, and six? Yes, yes. Because yeah. he was he was the carry through in the yeah. in the fifth film. Yes. 
And boy, was he a hottie in number five. Gotta pay respects <laughs> to that guy. Um, yeah, and then the middle trilogy for Nightmare was three, four, five. And uh-huh. I just think that's so, like, I don't know, lack of a better word, random. And I, I like it. I like it, too. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, it's it's something that I don't know if we see as much anymore. Because I'm trying to think of a more modern franchise that's done that. But they keep rebooting. They keep starting fresh and erasing history. And so it's kind of hard to do anymore. Right. Although, great- I guess these new Halloween films are a standalone late franchise trilogy. But does it count if it's a reboot? I don't know. I it's become so difficult to sort of differentiate at this point that I, I don't know if I have a clear answer on that. At the end of the day, I'm always just a little bit grateful that we're getting some of these <laughs> legacy sequels, no matter how they're presented. For sure. I agree. And and sometimes it works really well. Do you remember, uh, God, to tell you the truth, I don't even remember what it's called, but the, the Leprechaun reboot. Origins? Uh, maybe was it didn't have Warwick Davis in it. Yeah, and... it was like a wrestler or something. Yeah, but wasn't that actually good? Like, am I remembering that? I don't. I, I, I don't think I saw. It. Pull it there up. It may have been Origins and then just Leprechaun, but this is one of the franchises that I I don't have a firm. I don't have a real firm handle on. Sooner or later, we'll be seeing Fred again. Well, look what happened with Halloween, though. Um, it worked out. I, well, yeah. I mean, I'd argue that it worked out. No, I would argue that it worked out too. I just, sometimes the rights being up for grabs can, can be interesting because it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if this, if the studio that owns the rights can't get their act together, sometimes uh, yeah. you know, something gets, something gets disrupted. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, next thing you know, there's, there's a fresh set of eyes with a fresh perspective. And, um, you know, as much as maybe we hate to see that it can also sometimes be the best thing that could happen. Well, we were talking about this with Hellraiser a, a couple months ago, how that poor franchise was like suffering in with all of these like $300,000 sequels because no one knew what to do with it. And finally, it's getting its big budget follow ups. Friday the 13th, of course, being the most infamous of all the cases just because of the legal issues there. Tyler, would you mind if I gave a bit of history on Freddy's Dead? Just Please do. For, just for a little context. So Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare also sometimes known as Nightmare on Elm Street 6, The Final Nightmare, kind of like that more, uh, is a 1991 entry in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, sixth in canon. It was released on September 13th, 1991. It made about 35 million bucks here on this side of the pond. It only had a budget of 10 million, so it really made its money and then some. I believe it was a better success than the movie that came before at number five. But it was super duper panned by critics upon release. So this movie stars a number of people, including Lisa Zane, Robert England, Brecken Meyer. And there were quite a few notable cameos of like big celebs. We've got Johnny Depp, Roseanne Barr, Tom Arnold, and even Alice Cooper shows up. Something that I love about it is that Iggy Pop sings the title song, which plays over the end. Um, let's get into some of our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions about this film. I don't think I ever realized that it was like full on camp until my rewatch today. Like, I think I knew kind of, but I didn't like, like, that's what they were going for. Like, they wanted to do the John Waters thing. Clearly, I, I don't know how successful that they managed to do that, but that's clearly the way they were going, right? Oh, absolutely. It would make sense because Taylele, Rachel Taylele, who directed this entry, had been working with New Line since the very beginning. 
And before they tackled A Nightmare on Elm Street, they had worked with with um, John Waters. Uh-huh. So she kind of had a history a little bit with John Waters and clearly sort of got what he was doing. So mm-hmm. it's kind of cool to see the influence on this film. Kind of weird. Doesn't look great. I feel like it kind of has a, like a TV kind of X-Files look to it. How did you feel the aesthetics of this film turned out? That's a that's a really good call. Uh, it does have kind of a cheaper, lower budget feel to it, particularly in some of the more... Uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Ambitious sequences. Mm. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, you know, the animated video game uh, sequence is is just so poorly realized. Like, it looks like, you know, something that a wedding videographer would make, like, in 1990. Yeah. I mean, it's that bad. Pretty bad. Pretty bad. But also in some moments, like, I don't know. I This time around, I definitely gave it more of a pass. <laughs> like the really infamous and silly Breckenmeyer sequence where Freddy sort of absorbs him into the, to the TV and then they like play video games together. I remember oh, that being exactly what, I, exactly what I was talking about. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. I remember that being really appalling on my first few views, but today I was, I don't know. I enjoyed it. I, it made me laugh. It was stupid, but I don't know. I had a good time with it. There's definitely, there's definitely uh, pieces of the film that I can appreciate. Yeah, it's in on the joke. It's meta. It's high camp. It's kind of John Waters. But at the same time, the writing, atrocious. Like, yes. like go to jail. I'm calling the cops. Bad. <laughs> and I have written down some of these lines. Can I share with you? I would some, love- and I'm, sh- I'm sure these are infamous. Everyone's going to know what I'm about to bring up. But I was like, whoa, go to writing school. So there's, <laughs> there's the scene where this character is approaching this, like, bloodied person in the corner of like of a of a room and it's supposed to be scary and and he holds his shoulder and then the it turns around and it's him and it's him and he says to himself free me you idiot i'm your fucking memory and it's <laughs> so dumb it's like what do you mean what also like a cringy and b what are you talking about what does that like i i'm confused Okay, so while we're talking about WTF moments, did you notice about 20 <laughs> minutes in, the guy at the fair going in circles on the bumper cars and sort of moaning? Of course. Because yeah. it seemed like something you would notice and appreciate in your way that you appreciate things, so I thought of Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I do think he was tonally in line with the teacher that never stops teaching. Yes! <laughs> Those, like, sad adults that are just, like, I don't know, really, like, they're just, like, trying to figure it out after Freddy killed all their kids. Right, right. Spe- speaking of them, my favorite cameo controversial in the whole movie has got to be Roseanne and Tom Arnold. They're so funny. <laughs> She's like, I where I want my children. And he's like, no, because he'll come back. It's so funny. I really, yes. I, they pulled it off. That was definitely high camp. And I, I think that maybe that was one of the moments where you could see the waters influence the most. Yes. Because they, they feel like, you know, when, when you initially said John Waters, I didn't necessarily, it didn't necessarily click for me right away, but I kind of marinated on it. And I think that their cameo feels like it could have come out of, you know, like pink flamingos or something. I mean, it, it feels Hell very, yeah. well, any, just about any John Waters film, but, you know, just to name one. <laughs> Yeah. I, I I think that uh, that was very very high camp and uh, through the uh, roof. D- definitely one of the places where I can see what you're talking about. 
And obviously Twin Peaks was playing an influence on this film too, to the point where he actually goes like, whoa, like this place is so, I don't know what the line is, but they literally reference Twin Peaks, which is like bad writing. Don't, it's also 1991. It's like, don't literally say Twin Peaks in this movie. That's like gauche as hell. I um, think that's funny. this movie is very much uh, a product of its time. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the wardrobe, uh, in particular, the hairstyles, the 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 teenage cast, the way that they just kind of mope around and look like they're going to a Pearl Jam concert. Like it could not possibly be, you know, anything other than, you know, 1991. I mean, it, it's pretty much, uh, you know, give or take a year or two. It's, it's pretty easy to identify exactly when it's from. And I, I don't know, I, I guess sometimes that can be okay. Like sometimes it can be charming. You know, if we look back on the era fondly, uh, eventually, mm-hmm. but I, I just, yeah, I, I think it's a huge gamble. I would much rather see something like the original is so much more timeless. Uh, super it plays timeless. Yeah. very well. You don't watch it and say, Oh God, you know, this is 1984. Like you watch it and it kind of, takes you out of that and yeah you know the wardrobe the hairstyles everything are you know not timeless but they're a lot more classic looking than you know what we mm-hmm. saw in Freddy's dead and uh I, I think that's one of many reasons that it you know just hasn't aged Suffers. very well yeah it, it, i mean it wasn't very well received but then it, it's almost like it got even worse as it aged I, I, de- we're definitely not kind history was not kind on Freddy's dead but i have a feeling after watching it now with 2022 eyes, that people are going to come around to it soon. People I think, do with almost everything. People have come around yeah. to Friday the 13th 5, warm up mm-hmm. to. They do, people, yeah. People warm up to. And, and Freddy's Dead absolutely has its defenders. Elise Wax, a former Dread Central editor, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, is actually a fan. And she's someone who I respect very much. So, cool. um, you know, I, I when I watched it, I, you know, tried to sort of look for uh you know maybe what she sees in it because i like i said i respect her and Mm -hmm. uh uh you know on that same note i i did find more to like about it this time than i ever have before me too definitely me too uh and i think well the expect expectations were on the ground but (laughs) but yeah it was it was more fun than i've ever had with it before and i think i kind of got it in a way that i've never really got it before and while i don't think it succeeded i think this time i was on the same page as freddy's dead more than i've ever been before although i will say the use of sexual trauma in this film is like terrible really really messy and kind of brings it back from the point it kind of pushes it to the point of no return a little bit I agree. That's another element that hasn't aged well. People probably didn't necessarily bat an eye when it came out, yep. but I think we're a lot more evolved, you know, uh, after, what has it been, 31 years since it came out? Uh, uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, isn't isn't that right? Because it's 2022 and the film came out in 91, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And I think at the time it was like edgy to do some of the sexual trauma stuff as yes. horror, but yes. now it just comes across as like, ew. Well, we're, we're a little more informed and I think we, we realize, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, some of the ramifications of sort of uh, using something like that for entertainment value, you know, the, the way that it, you know. It, yeah. And maybe it, it had good intentions. Like, and, and I, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. Putting her, putting the lead though and like that little girl dress in the pigtails was like, guys, like, no, no, bad. Um, 
but yes, it's a different time and you got to look at it with that lens. Uh, so one of the scariest scenes for me in this is Carlos's death because I don't know, I have an aversion to like ear horror, like, like putting something in like the, Oh, when the lady or his mom, I guess had that really long ear. What am I talking? Trying to say the Q-tip, the really long Q-tip. Oh Lord. No, that that's, that's a no for me. I agree. I put the same thing in my notes. Uh, you know, I, I just said that um, I find that scene to be by far the most disturbing, uh, but also, you know, the scariest and the grossest and, and so many other things. Mm-hmm. Maybe the uh, most effective. By far. And uh, you, you probably already know this because you're uh, pretty studious with your research. But uh, I believe that Robert England actually told Dread Central once that uh, that is his favorite kill in the totality of the the franchise. Really? Yeah. I love that that was to Dread Central. I didn't I know. know that. And that's super cool. Yeah. And it's and it is. It's really it's creative. It's really disturbing. And it's like visceral. It's like, no, stop. Oh God, not the ear. Yeah. It's I, I have a thing with like I, I can barely watch the dentist. I have to almost like watch it through, you know, <laughs> yeah. my the cracks of my fingers. Oh uh, and I yeah, feel we all, yeah. I feel the same way about that scene in Freddy's Dead for sure. Ugh. I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but like do you have did you ever have like scary dental experiences as a kid? Yes, I grew up in a that, small so... town and uh, uh, our dentist was super rough. He used to call his like younger patients not head or like uh, uh, what God he used to, uh, he, he used to like have all kinds of derogatory names that he would call children. And then he'd oh like rough up, rough up your mouth and kick you out and tell you to go home. I mean, it was pretty bad. And oh, so I'm I went so sorry. To, I went to a dentist in a neighboring city and he actually told me, and I don't think he was kidding, that when he went to dental school, they didn't have Novocaine. So, <gasps> oh, geez, Louise. Yeah, I, I, just, I had a dental visit last week, and there were needles involved. As, need- as scary as mouth needles are, I am grateful. <laughs> I am yeah. grateful. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. And I think, so I understand why that would be the case for you in, like, dental horror. I had, like, a lot of ear infections as a kid growing up, so ears or like uh you know an th- ongoing theme in my life that's got to be why this is like too much to handle for me and i and i actually kind of like that <laughs> good good yeah, I, yeah. I i had a lot of ear infections as a kid as well me uh, too yeah I, maybe it's just part of like your body developing i i think it's you know not something that adults generally get but um, mm-hmm. but yes, I, I think that, uh, you know, for anyone that struggled with that growing up, that certainly has the potential to be a major trigger. Oh, hell yeah. And considering how not scary this movie is, it's nice every once in a while for it to kind of get me. Absolutely. I agree. Um, do you have any final thoughts, concerns, feelings about Freddy's Dead before I sort of usher us into a new era? I just wonder uh, who the hairstylist was on this film because Tom Arnold, Breckenmeyer, and Mrs. Tom Arnold, as she's credited, I believe, all have bad <laughs> hair. This was not a good movie for hair. Did you? Did you I didn't that? notice, but I did notice Brecken's hair being um, non-ideal. Oh, very much so. Not not ideal. Actually, it'd be, it would be cute if it wasn't for the rat tail. I I, I am a. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he he ditched the rat tail, you know, a year <laughs> or two later. Uh, okay. Not too long after that, he appeared in Clueless and The Craft and, you know, the, the stuff that he's really well known for. Mm-hmm. I know it's always funny seeing him in this because it's right before he got big. Right. And he's just like a little younger than he was when he sort of made it. So it's like, it's kind of funny to see him. And, you know, I don't know if there were that. Do we get that many other teen stars other than Johnny Depp out of this? Out of this franchise that sort of had a life outside of these films? Uh, yeah, one of the Arquette sisters. Oh, of course. Patricia. Yes, thank you. I, I, I always confuse their names. So that's why yeah, I just. There's so many Arquettes in this world. And we love them all, but there's many of them. Um, and I guess Monica Kina is an iconic teen icon. Said that word twice from Freddy versus Jason. I love. <laughs> she talked about it a lot in her press cycle that she like is terrified of Freddy Krueger. Like she had like a pathological fear of Freddy as a kid, like a lot of people do. It's just funny to think about someone like that actually having to film one of these movies i love that Catherine isabel was also in freddy versus jason and she's yes. you know, a pretty big star in her own right and, and was you know going into freddy versus jason because i believe she already done ginger snaps and yep. you know had a couple of other noteworthy credits under her belt at that point oh i'm such a big fan of hers and the ginger snaps movies because i'm canadian and it's in the contract i've interviewed her a couple of times and she seems like such a nice like down-to-earth funny person so as we were saying, and we're going to continue talking about, Freddy's Dead wasn't necessarily the way that New Line was going to go for the sixth A Nightmare on Elm Street film. They had also tapped into a young emerging filmmaker by the name of Peter Jackson, who had just made a couple of, uh, let's say, attention-grabbing indie horror films. So before we get into what his A Nightmare on Elm Street film was going to look like, I was wondering if you'd mind if I give a little bit of history on the man, the legend, Peter Jackson. Oh, please do. So most of you are well aware Peter Jackson is a filmmaker from New Zealand, best known, I'd say, for the Lord of the Rings trilogy and I guess the Hobbit trilogy as well. But she's got some other very notable works under her belt. One of my favorite movies of all time, 1994's Heavenly Creatures. Yeah, so one of my favorite movies ever, Heavenly Creatures, based on a real-life crime, stars Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky. And she is on that show with with Christina Ricci, Yellow Jackets, and I love it. I still have to check it out. That's why I probably didn't know who you were talking about. Oh, yeah, I definitely, definitely recommend Yellow Jackets. Pure 90s horror energy so sounds right up, to check right out. up my alley had a feeling yeah so he did lord of the rings we talked about that already hobbits we'll talk about that heavenly creatures a big one for me the frighteners from 1996 i love that movie uh he did the 2005 king kong and also more recently the 2021 beatles documentary get back which i hear good things about but i have not seen This dude is the third highest grossing film director of all time, which is an insane accomplishment. And I'm guessing The Lord of the Rings had something to do with it. (laughs) His first film was Bad Taste. So this is considered to be maybe one of the goriest movies of all time. Super, super cult, hyper indie, tiny, tiny budget that he made over a series of like four or five years with three actors that were his friends. And then at the Cannes Film Festival in 1987, it blew up, sold basically in every country on the planet, and really put him on the map. Um, 
After that, he made a film called Meet the Feebles that sort of continued his reign of terror, but this time with like a Muppet-style musical. And in 1990 was about the time that he was tapped by New Line Cinema to come up with a concept, potentially. He was tapped to write The Dream Lover with his writing partner at the time, Danny Mulherin. So Nightmare 5 failed to perform at the box office in the way that New Line Cinema was hoping that it would. And because of this, they decided that they really weren't going to shake things up with a sixth film. So this is why they decided to connect with a hot young filmmaker off of Bad Taste, who was getting all of this buzz. And they also uh, got a concept from Rachel Taylele and her writing partner, who had been working on this franchise for a really long time. So what I'm about to get into, I've recounted from the book Peter Jackson, from Prince of Splatter to Lord of the Rings by author Ian Pryor. So according to Ian Pryor, Jackson's first Hollywood paycheck actually came from New Line Cinema, who paid him to come up with a concept for Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6. The reason why they were interested in him was because of bad taste, which had caught the attention of um, all sorts of distributors when it came out, specifically because it showed that Jackson was able to work with a small budget, but yet produce something really special and have a lot of charm and a lot of his own personality. Uh, there was a script reader at New Line Cinema by the name of Mark Odesky. And he was the one that sort of noticed Peter Jackson for the first time. And he wanted to actually distribute his films through New Line. And while that never happened, New Line did sort of get his eye on him. And eventually, like t 10 years later, they would create the Lord of the Rings trilogy that really like put Peter Jackson as the biggest Hollywood director of all time. So it all kind of started with A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is pretty interesting. So Jackson and uh, Mulherin's script was really different from what the franchise was used to seeing because it took Freddy and it made him the victim and it made him vulnerable. So one of the interesting angles that they took was that Freddy had lost all of his power in the dream world. He wasn't able to hurt anyone anymore to the extent where kids from Springwood were knocking themselves out with drugs so that they could go into the dream world and beat him up and harass him and sort of like, like attack him together. It became a bit of a sport for the teens of Springwood, which is interesting because he for so long was terrorizing the teenagers of this town. And now the tables have turned, which is, it wouldn't be a nightmare on Elm street if, the teens didn't get their comeuppance. And because some of these teens took it too far, Freddy, through the luck of God, was able to get one of them, kills one of these kids, and then as sort of an effect from there, slowly but surely builds his power, regains his strength, and starts terrorizing Elm Street once again. Uh, yeah. The film's hero is a policeman who suffers from a coma and is in the dream world where he's vulnerable to Freddy Krueger. So according to author Ian Pryor, the climax of this film, once again, was the destruction of Freddy Krueger. So the New Line Cinema liked the script. They thought it was an interesting take. No one really knows why it didn't take off. 
to this day, there's not a lot of information about why they went ahead with Taylor Lay's concept over Peter Jackson's. If I was going to wildly speculate, I would say it might have something to do with the fact that Taylor Lay had gained such an amazing relationship with Bob Shea and New Line Cinema over a decade of actually working on these films and acquainting herself with every artist that was coming in the door. So it would make sense that they would give her a chance to actually make one of these movies. And it's pretty damn cool that we have a Nightmare on Elm Street film from a woman. We don't get that very often with any of our other franchises. Tyler, is there any other legacy franchise that we can think of that has uh, an entry directed by a woman? Uh, I feel like something might come to me at some point. Yeah, me too, but... You know, and I'll interrupt so. and, and bring it up, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Of course. And I think you might yeah. be onto something uh, uh, with what you were just saying, um, mm-hmm. about how she ended up at the helm. That's uh, discussed a little bit, and if you've probably seen it, uh, the uh, Never Sleep Again documentary. I have, uh, yeah. Uh, they they kind of dive into, you know, how exactly she uh, impressively landed that role at a time where, um, you know, for every 100 male directors, there were, was maybe one female or, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what it seems looking back. Uh, so, yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. She she did develop a close relationship with New Line and I believe worked on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street films pretty much from the get go. I think uh, so, too. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think she was even... I. I... I haven't I haven't seen Never Sleep Again in a little while, but I think that's where I learned. I think she may have even started off as a production assistant. I think you're um, right. Yeah, and maybe became, I think I might recall them saying she was a location scout, but that might be talking out of my butt, and eventually became a producer and eventually became a director, which is really cool. And she's went on to direct other interesting things and in recent years has even directed YA horror for Netflix. So she's had a really amazing career. Absolutely. Um, but uh, unfortunately, yes. What were we, you going to say? I, I guess we wouldn't really consider it a franchise, but I believe both Pet Cemetery films were helmed by Mary. Yes, Mary Lambert, I think, is Pet Cemetery yes. named Mary. And also that female film directors were so rare, uh, you so know, in, rare. in the 80s and 90s, really into the 2010s and beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that sometimes it makes it easy to transpose, but in no way, I don't. I don't think does either one of us mean to uh, no, no, of belittle not. Or, or minimize their incredible uh, contributions to uh, the cinematic universe and to well, to to the various cinematic universes and uh, to the horror genre. And I think she also directed Tank Girl, which personally yeah, I love. Lori Petty, that is such a wild movie, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you kind of see the. You kind of see the Freddy's Dead history in that movie, but it, I think it pulls it off a little better than Freddy's Dead did. You definitely couldn't have done Tank Girl without Lori Petty. Can you imagine another mm-hmm. actress, uh, you know, taking that on? Absolutely not. If you had to, who would it be? I, I'm at a loss, honestly. <laughs> uh, it has what, to be Lori. What about no? What about Kate McKinnon though? <laughs> well, the, okay, I think it's always a bit of a cheat with Kate McKinnon because she because could just she do, can anybody. do anything. Yeah. She could just like impersonate literally anything. Yeah. So like, of course she can play Carol Baskin. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. And uh, like play yeah. her. She does. Have you watched, uh, have you watched no. that? Uh, I don't know if you, which Joe versus Carol. Yeah. I have not. It, do you have Peacock in Canada? I don't, but I'm sure it's on something that we've got here. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
It's, oh, yeah, uh, actually, maybe we do. Don't quote me, guys. Don't quote me. It's pretty wild, uh, just the way that she's she kind of became Carol Baskin. Like, I, I feel like I don't know where Kate McKinnon, like, stops and mm-hmm. Carol Baskin starts and vice versa. I love that. Also, I'm not over that whole saga. I think some people may have kind of moved past the Joe Exotic saga, but I cannot wait to watch that personally. Also, um... John Cameron Mitchell, am I saying that right? Uh-huh. From Hedwig. What a, what a gay hero. What a what a gay hero. No, Indeed. what a gay hero. In, indeed. Uh and uh uh really, really, really both uh, uh both leads. Yeah. Uh uh j- just incredibly uh impressive how they really immerse themselves uh, you know, down to the slightest tick or mannerism and <laughs> uh, became the people that they're playing. And I cannot wait. I actually didn't realize it was out out, to be honest with you. On on Peacock in uh, in the States, it is. I couldn't say for sure, you know, uh, where you would find it uh, up north. But but we will and we will report back. So I think that might be it for me in terms of what we were supposed to see with the dream lover. Although I do want to speculate a little bit about why it was called that because it could mean so many things it could mean someone that loves to dream it could be uh, a, a a romantic interest for freddy krueger which would be interesting i would love to see a lady freddy krueger at some point i don't know how you're gonna do that but i'd like to see it um if you had to take a wild guess if you had to take a wild stab in the dark what do you think the dream lover is referring to i mean i would have to assume uh there's some kind of like romance or sexual tryst or something that takes place in the dream world. Cause it, yeah, I, I, I feel like for it to be about someone that loved to dream would be a little, <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Would be a little peculiar. <laughs> it, it could mean that. And maybe Peter Jackson had something up his sleeve that I'm not aware of, but I suspect well, Freddie loves dreams kind of, because he can kill in them. Some kind of intimate relationship that it was referencing is always how I've taken it. I think so too. It also really falls in line with, you know, dream child, dream master, you dream know, warriors, dream warriors. It gives, you know, it gives you a role in the dreams. So I bet you money. If there was a dream lover, that was like a female lead. That was like, I don't know, supposed to be linked up with him in some way. I, I think it would be like a, a bride of Frankenstein kind of a scenario where she's not into it, but you know, he's got his, He's got his terrible ideas. So I'd like to know what it meant. Personally. Me too. Well, uh, next week, maybe we can bring Peter Jackson on and we can say, Pete. Hey, Pete, what's up? What, what did you mean? It. Come on, Pete. Actually, he's sitting right here, but he's yeah. looking at me and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to talk about it. He's giving me like the signal. So what a um, bitch. I'll, I know. I know. He's, I'll, I'll talk to him later. Um. So this leads us, you and I, into the realm of conclusions. And you may know that you and I have a lot of sway in this industry. So oh, if we just... We're you know, makers, yeah. we're shakers. And we're um, other things too. Candlestick so, makers. I was trying to think of something and I got nothing. I was like, confetti bakers? And I was like, that's not a thing. Um, it's up oh, to us to decide. China. Thank you. It's up to us to decide if Peter Jackson's ever going to get to make a Nightmare on Elm Street project do you think it's ever in the history of mankind possible that Peter Jackson will revisit A Nightmare on Elm Street? Or is it absolutely 
just impossible. I don't think anything's impossible. I I think what might have to happen is his mainstream career would have to slow down a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Because I I think that, you know, I mean, Elm Street films have a budget of maybe like five to 20 million, you know, range. And a Peter Jackson film has a budget of like, 300 to yeah, uh, so, 8 so trillion. I just kind of feel like where he's at in his career, he would probably have to not fall from grace at all, but I think he would have to probably have, you know, less successful box office returns to ever go back there. But, um, you know, like you said, it's up to us. So yeah, it's up know. to us. It's up to you and I. So, so if it were up to us, totally. Um, yeah, I, I think so too. Maybe he's got a lot of debt. Maybe he's buying a lot of haunted castles like Nick Cage and he has to, he has to do something to to pay it off. So this could be a good way to start. Certainly. Uh, and, and I think that it would be pretty incredible. I mean, he really is a powerhouse talent with such originality, such creativity, such great ideas uh, that, I mean, I, I think the sixth film would have been such a different beast were he at the helm and, you know, particularly yeah. had he uh, co-written, because I feel like there's only so much you could do with the Freddy's Dead script. But, you know... Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Completely. Are you still there? Oh, I'm still here. I was just oh, good. trying not to cut you off, which I tend to do. I, um, I know. I'm the king of cutting people off. I just ha- We just have to accept the fact that I'll edit it out and make it sound cute. Um, I agree. I kind of wish we could have seen it, but I personally don't think it's ever going to happen. And that's okay. My more important question for us, the one that's really weighing on me that I really would like an answer for (laughs) is what's next for a nightmare on Elm street. Is it going to be a movie? Is it going to be a series? Is it going to be nothing ever again? God, it's not a series. This might make me, this might make me like, you know, your most hated guest ever, but Uh I Uh really don't always love, you know, when, a beloved franchise or film is turned into episodic television. Like sometimes it can be really great, but I mean, I I just didn't really vibe with, I know what you did last summer. I I was going to bring it up. I was going to say what you didn't like. I know what you did last summer. I I really love, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the leads for that. I interviewed two of the, the female leads and they were such sweethearts. They were so fun to talk to. They were both great in the series, but just as a whole, it didn't really win me over. And we, a lot of talent. the first time sure. that that's happened for me. I just, I feel like, you know, as great as TV has gotten, thanks to shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad that have showed that, you know, more is less sometimes, you know, eight episodes or 12 or 13, you know, you, you can tell a much better story and it doesn't yep. have to be just, you know, solely to, to sell advertising. You can have creative freedom with television, but even still, um, you know, trying to take something that was intended to be 90 minutes and turning it into nine hours it doesn't, doesn't work. always work for me. No, and no. so uh, I, I really hope that it's not television because it is my favorite horror franchise and something that I love and cherish so much. Not that, you know, turning it into TV would tarnish what we already have, but it just... I, I would rather see that, you know... Yeah, that you want an event. You want... You want the, yeah. Yeah. Channeled into another feature. I, I, I think that is the best way to go. Uh, totally. Agree. But mark my words, we'll probably have a series at some point. <laughs> it's just kind of inevitable. Well, let's get a reboot going of Freddy's Nightmares, hun. I'd like to see that like super crappy I would uh, Tales from the Crypt the- vibe. 
I would rather see Friday the 13th, the series rebooted. And that's oh another Wax reference because she <laughs> is the foremost authority on that. She quite literally wrote the book on it. And Whoa. she's the only person I know that loves that show more than I do. I have actually never been able to find it. Uh, like, e- like easily in, in Canada. Uh, so. Well, Josh, it's available as a region one DVD, which Canada is region one. So you could just, you, you could hop on eBay and pick it up for 20 bucks. I bet. Okay. Without lifting a finger, I haven't been able to find it. You know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know without having to put any money or effort into it. You know what I mean? Without actually even having to Google it. I've never really tried. If I'm going to be fully honest with you. But one of these days I'd like to. It kind of ha- ha- sounds like a bit of a Needful Things vibe. And that's that wins me over. Yeah, here it is on eBay uh, for $26.99. Season one, season, seasons one through three. $26.99 free shipping. You'd probably have to pay a little bit of a uh, premium to get it shipped to Canada. but Unless uh, it's a double feature with Freddy's Nightmares, which never was on DVD, I'm not buying it. So send I, it back. I really want you to, though. It's actually <laughs> enjoyable. It's very dark. Oh. David Cronenberg directed several episodes of it. Oh, cool. Uh, there's, there's an episode not directed by David Cronenberg. It's pretty great body horror. It's just very dark, sinister. Uh, it's terribly cheaply made you know it, it's not like must-see tv but there's something really special about it nonetheless calling it cheaply made and not must-see tv is truly how you won me over so i'm not kidding that's how you get to my that's how you get well, to my heart i mean that's all truth like it is very cheaply made it's uh probably that. about as cheaply made as uh freddy's nightmares uh, a little a little bit more integrity i'm guessing and, and when i want to when i say not must see tv i don't mean it's not good i just mean it's not you know it doesn't have the budget of you know uh some of its contemporaries from that era but mm-hmm. they did a lot with a little i feel like that's the best thing i could say about it and the most accurate thing i could say about it i mean it's pretty, I, I will watch this at some point pretty good it's far better than it should be uh, for the budget that it had and the fact that it has like not a thing to do with Friday the 13th, but it is the official television series I of love the Friday it. the 13th franchise. When I, and I like that nobody's like, I don't know, maybe they are, but people don't seem that mad about it in the way that they were with Halloween 3. So I think fun. it's because no one, no one saw it. I mean, it was a syndicated <laughs> series uh-huh. that like not every local network had to carry and it yeah. wasn't when it's in like syndic- the early nineties, I'm guessing. Uh, yes, I believe so. And, and when a TV series is syndicated, the local affiliate can air it anytime they want. So they could air it at two in the morning on, you know, Saturday. Yeah. Uh, if, if they wanted, which to I'm sure it. is generally when it was there, so there was no continuity between markets where you could say like, Oh, Friday the 13th series is on right now. Let's, you know, let's, let's check it out and, you know, compare notes with your friends. Like, it depended on where you live. So so I think that was kind of a detriment. And it was sold in uh, conjunction with one of the the, the new Star Trek uh, series. So so it was pitched mm-hmm. to network, like local network affiliates as if you want Star Trek DS9 or wh- whatever that era was, you yep. have to take Friday the 13th also. That's so funny. God, I miss the 90s. What a perfect, what a perfect era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you've sold me. I'd like to check it out. I'm I'm looking for like comfort '90s crap. It's watch. very much that, you know. So. If, if I uh, just want to uh-huh. kind of wind down for the night, uh, I love to pop on an episode of that and watch. You know what, Josh? Actually, season one aired in 1987, so it might have been 87, <gasps> 88, 89, and Whoa. possibly 90. 
So it that's was, way older than I was expecting. Yeah, it was eighty-seven that. through ninety. I just looked it up. So it it was nineties, but you know, mm, really, it kind of had its its heart in the eighties. And and the yeah. best uh, the best episodes IMO uh, were the <laughs> were were contained within the first two seasons. Well, then hopefully it's not going to be a TV show. Hopefully we're going to get this Nightmare on Elm Street film at some point. Did you hear that rumor? Not rumor. That Spectre Vision, a.k.a. Elijah Wood, sort of put his hat in the ring for a reboot, or at least, I don't know, or at least, like, mentioned it lightly in an interview or something. It I, came up in the combo. I didn't. Um, I'm sure we reported on it on reported on it on Dread, and, uh, you know, I, I just missed it, but... This is a uh, few years already back. Oh, was it? Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, no, I hadn't heard that, but um, I, I would be very curious to see what he could do. I think he has a really good eye for what's scary. And uh, I, I just, I think he's kind of a creative powerhouse. I mean, he's multi-talented. I, I wrote an article for Dread about five directors who I thought might be good to take on a Nightmare on Elm Street. Can I run them by you and get your opinion? Oh yeah. On please, which, on if do. any you agree with. Please do. So who do I got? I got Oz Perkins from Black Coat's Daughter and Gretel and Hansel. Okay. Um, uh, Andre Orvidal from Autopsy of Jane Doe um, and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I've got Nia DaCosta, obviously Candyman. Uh, Ronnie Yu. <laughs> That's got to be my favorite. And then Anna Lily Amapur from A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night to like maybe get some real scary Freddy back in the game. Is there you anyone know, in there that you connect with? I would be happy to see any of those people uh, step in. But um, Andre, how do you say his last name? Orvidal? Okay, so so that I mean, I love I love scary <laughs> stories to tell in the dark. Me too. Uh, I I think that to me was just such a great showcase of his talent uh, that it that it would make me and also to show that he can do something that's both like mainstream and marketable and mm-hmm. you know has a PG thirteen rating but still scares the shit out of you. Yeah. Uh, so so for me, not by no means am I saying I want a PG thirteen Elm Street, but what I am saying is that he knows how to walk the line between marketable and still scary and exciting. Yeah. And and so I feel like that's someone that knows how to work within the studio system, but still present something that's really like enjoyable to consume. And, and so that might be my top pick out of those, but I would love to see any one of those uh, ultra talented creators take a stab. And I hope that someone ultra talented does. I'd be very interested and waited. And honestly, like, Really waiting for some I, kind of announcement. I think it's really going to need to be someone young, up and coming, uh, yeah. in the way that, like, um, who was it? Radio Silence that did the the scream, uh, yeah. the scream twenty twenty two. Yeah, uh, you know, and they haven't been around forever. They've still got you know kind of some of their best ideas in them. I think, and that's mm-hmm. probably what we need. Uh, you know, is like a Fede Alvarez, for example, with Evil Dead, who you know, was kind of this newcomer that said, let's shake things up. Let's not have an Ash character. Let's killed it. He blew it out of the park. He really did. And I think that's what we need is someone that still kind of, you know, got some of their best ideas within them uh, to take a fresh look at it and say, let's (sighs) shake it up and do all these things different and subvert expectations. But Mm -hmm. here's how we'll tie it all together and, you know, make it something that people are going to go crazy for. Uh, you know, because mm-hmm. if we continue to to tap people that have, you know, made 500 films, you know, and are probably fresh out of ideas because they've, you know, really kind of put their their uh, their best work out there already, we we may get something kind of tried and expected 
Uh, All right, Tyler, you've convinced me. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it. All right, you you really convinced me. You know, I, I I'll I'll put up uh, my ego aside and I'll direct on Eight Man Elm Street movie. Fine. Well, I'm I I appreciate that you would sink down. Is you always just throw zany shit at the wall. You know, to yeah. see that sticks. <laughs> yeah. and, and most of the time it just lands and it's like, Aww. damn. Like, why didn't I think of that? I really appreciate that. All you can do is follow your your weirdo creative impulses and maybe sometimes they work. Um, I think oftentimes for you, they work, my friend. You uh, you are so like uh, slow to ever take credit for anything. You're like, oh, it was a mistake that it worked. Ha ha, happy accident. But I mean, it's true though. Most of the time, it is. Well, no, I'm kidding. I take it back. Take it back. Record where it works way more often than it doesn't. Then maybe it's not such a mistake. You know, you just gotta, you just gotta close your eyes and go with God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Tyler, if people wanted to find you, if they wanted to come for you and your family, how would they be able to do that? Where on the internet are you accessible? Oh God, you are so funny, my friend. Uh, <laughs> thank you for asking. I love exposure and uh, I will gladly tell you where people can find me. Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram as at fun with horror, F-U-N-W-I-T-H-H-O-R-R-O-R. And I am on Facebook at facebook.com slash fun with horror. I like to keep it easy with same username across the big three. Got to do it. It's uh, all part of that brand. And yeah, guys, follow Tyler because his writing is incredible and he's a super cool guy. Um, thank you so much for joining me again on Development Hell. And I know I'm going to have you back sooner than later because I'll just abduct you and it's up to me when that happens. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I've, uh, <laughs> of, of uh, guest hosting experiences I've had, this is certainly one of my most favorite uh, because yeah. we just have so much fun and we have a, a great natural chemistry. So, oh, definitely. Uh, it's so easy so to talk to. If you want to, you know, abduct me, just return me when you're done. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.